All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. to this week's episode of Your Brain on Science. Today I'm going to be talking about something that's pretty common in the preclinical psychedelic literature that might sound a little bit weird to folks who don't know much about scientific methodology. And this week's topic is head twitch behavior or the head twitch response. To talk about this response more in depth and what measuring this behavior really means, I brought on a friend and colleague, Dr. Mario de la Fuenta Revenga. Welcome, Mario. Thank you for having me over. So before we get into this topic, I always have my guests tell the listeners a little bit about themselves and how they got into the psychedelic research field. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for having me over, Alina, about myself. Uh, I'm a drug developer and neuroscientist. I've been working on psychedelics for now a little bit over 10 years. I got my farm degree back uh, in Spain where I come from followed by a PhD in medicinal chemistry. Uh, and, you know, sometimes chemistry cannot get all the answers. So that's when I decided to venture deeper into the pharmacology. Um, so it was actually a very natural journey for me to go from the chemistry to the pharmacology. Uh, I was messing around with analogs of melatonin that for those that are not too familiar with the structure, uh, embodies uh, tryptamine, uh, the, the tryptamine core that is so present in, in psychedelics. So that's when I went down that rabbit hole of the chemistry of um, tryptamines, venturing to ayahuasca alkaloids, explore some of the neurotrophic uh, properties of these psychedelic-like compounds before the term psychoplastin was even coined. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, just went all the way into the pharmacology, of course, looking at different psychedelics and what they can do for us and how we can better understand them in preclinical models. Cool. And so uh, the so I've met you working in the lab in Richmond at VCU, which has pretty, been pretty fun. Um, so you're the one who actually taught me how to quantify the head twitch response. And that's why I thought, you know, it'd be great to have you to discuss this topic. And you also just uh, were featured in an article from Psychedelic Alpha where you discussed what we're kind of talking about today, right? Yep, that is correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun journey, uh, especially with head twitches. It's, it's a behavior that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I It always appeared to me as one of those crucial aspects of psychedelic pharmacology that I wanted to dig further. And when I saw that there was a chance to really automate this thing, I went all the way down there. And it's something that I'm, a legacy that I, I left in Javier Gonzalez Maestro's lab that I'm really proud of. Um, so I guess let's get into it. So when somebody says head twitch, right? The first thing that comes to mind might be a person twitching or rapidly, you know, moving their head side to side. And a lot of people will be like, oh, well, what does this look like? Um, but in this case, we're not talking about humans, but instead animal subjects. So uh, could you maybe describe what this looks like in a rodent? And is it only following psychedelic administration or does this also happen naturally in animal subjects? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty 
natural behavior if you think about it i would probably put it under the category of a stereotype behavior or something that seems to belong into an autonomic response rather than something that they might start seeking to do actively so describing what it is is something very simple it's a very rapid side to side uh, motion of the of the head something similar to what you know a dog that's wet would do except that it's more circumscribed to the to the head and the neck and it's what's distinct about psychedelics is that they seem to elicit this occurrence at very high frequencies it's not that it's not present on on naturally on animals you could just like bother them a little bit on the back of the head and they would do it but with psychedelics it just do it immensely and uh, you know as much as something that we attribute to psychedelics something that some researchers are also uh, proposing as a potential model for Tourette syndrome, those takes, the stereotype behaviors, which I guess it could have some validity as well if we think about preclinical models. Mm -hmm. In the case of um, the face value for like something like Tourette syndrome, is that would that be like more of like a motor tick response that we're using the psychedelics to induce as a tool and then measuring, or like how would that? Do you have any ideas on how that would kind of work in that model? Yeah, I think I recall some genetic mouse line that was uh, designed as a potential Tourette syndrome model where the mice would naturally show a little bit more occurrence of these stereotype behaviors, uh, head twitch being one of them. I don't know to what extent this was mediated to a psychedelic. I think it was more something like naturally occurring increases. Gotcha. Which also highlights you know, how sometimes the same readout depending on the context and how you get to it can be used differently yeah I mean that's a big thing just across preclinical research with different models it's like what is the question that you're asking is going to kind of determine the validity of the model and how you're inferring your results so um, before we get into more specifics I wanted to talk about how this behavior is measured so you mentioned some automation in regards to measuring this phenomena so I was wondering if you could talk about what led you to this automation and a little bit about how it works yeah I think two 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 main um, occurrences led me to uh, the automation of, of this this behavior which by the way I authored the first fully automated system even there's even though there's like other approaches nowadays but one is um, the throughput that you can get, the ability of devoting a lot of time like I did back in the day to setting this up, uh, but at the same time being able to gain so much in terms of capability to, to evaluate compounds and their pharmacology. And the other one is something that uh, behavioral pharmacologists can probably relate to. When, when we do study behavior in animals, humans, whatever, uh, generally the magnitude of what we look at tends not to be too extreme, right? Like things tend to fall in that gray area uh, where statistics is ultimately what leads you to see an effect or lack of or lack of it. But with Hetrich, I was able to see very, very clear distinction in the receptors mediating it. It would, it would go for full-blown back and wide into the involvement of the pharmacology. So the combination of both made me realize that this is something worth going after. Gotcha. And yeah, in terms of automation, uh, there's been uh, quite quite some approaches, um, some based on visual assessment using uh, machine learning algorithms, and also some based on electromagnetism, which is more the, the one I'm acquainted with, also based on 
some of the work that Adam Halberstadt and UCSD made, uh, did previously, which basically consists on uh, electromagnetic induction. You have a mouse in which by different means you get a magnet on, could be an ear tag, could be an implant, and then in, in a coil, in a, in a coil wire, uh, whenever this animal um, moves or does anything, uh, you are able to pick that as a small change in the voltage. The cool thing about head twitch is that it's such a high speed or better said high frequency event, but there's very little things that an animal can do that can be mistaken at such, by, by having such high frequency. So that's the very big differentiator. And in, in, in itself is so well differentiated that you can almost pick it naturally just by looking at a trace of, of, a, of a coil readout. Yeah, because it's such a rapid head movement that sometimes if you're looking with the visual eye, you can honestly miss it unless you've been looking and doing the manual scoring right over and over again you get used to what you're looking for. But I've had people come in the lab that wanted to like see it for different projects and I'll like try to show them and they'll be like, wait, what? I didn't even see it. And, like, and that's, I guess, why it's important to automate such things. Right? Yeah, so. yeah. And it's, it, it's really fast. It's, it's easy to peek naked eye, but what the, one, the one thing that bothers me is sometimes is the video. A general video rate would have 60 frames per second. This is at 80 to 90 hertz movement. So, you know, by that difference in frequency, it's, it's gonna be a little bit tough to pick up visually mm -hmm. unless you have, a, you know, high frequency or high frames per, per second um, video set up. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've I've heard people compare kind of the electromagnetic way that it's quantifying this is like how the same thing that you can determine if a car is sitting in a drive-through, they have like this magnetic strip and then once the car goes in, since it's made of metal, it like detects it and that's how they notify you, the people that you're in the drive-through. So I don't know if you've ever heard that like analogy given. Yeah, no, the I technology is yeah. like similar. Um, in my old school conception of it, I, I would equate this to something that maybe newer generations are not too familiar. The dynamo that some bikes used to have to produce light. So instead of, you know, for, for your bike, instead of having a battery power in your light, it would be this little dynamo that connected to, the, to your wheel as you, um, as you circle, uh, sorry, as you, as you cycle, would generate a little bit of electricity and depending mm. on the speed and, and the frequency. But I guess the, the drive-through analogy <laughs> is more accurate because then it's just like, boom, event. Event goes through, right. event happens. Yeah, They both work, you know, different things. Electromagnetic forces. induction, that's, cool that's ultimately, that's ultimately <laughs> the, the basis of it. Yeah. Yeah, so visually, like I said, you know, if you, if you have a really good setup system with uh, great frames per second to capture the, the, the motion, which is what um, people at NIDA have um, implemented to, to feed their machine learning protocol. I think that's, that's, that's a great way of automating it. Uh, the electromagnetic, I think they can deliver, it, it can deliver at the same degree of performance in terms of sensi sensitivity and specificity. But the one that I would totally discount, and this is something that for the companies that I've been consulting for, I totally tend to keep them away from is visual assessment by a human subject. It's true that you can blind the experiment, it's true that you can do so many things, but it's so damn boring that after a while, people are gonna start missing them. And that's something that a computer would never give up on. So in that regard, any automation is better than visual scoring in my, in my understanding. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of the automation, whether it's the one at NIDA, um, with like, they have like the tracking system, right? The visual tracking. And then the one that we use, 
I feel like it's very well reported on that people could adopt that pretty easily. So I always wonder why they don't, I guess, just having time to put it all together and test it. But. Yeah, the learning curve probably, you know, um, shooting a video and having some peers assess it, it's tedious, but it's... Maybe less labor intensive. It's, 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 it's as little labor, in, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the least technical mm-hmm. approach that you can get going after five minutes observing a couple of head twitches to know what they look like versus the mm-hmm. other one that requires probably, uh, you know, more investment of both time and resources yeah. and money, plus a learning curve that you need to justify. You're going to be doing a lot of it. That's fair. And I, I have noticed too, with automated, um, literature versus just like video scoring, you see that the scores are so much lower, like obviously because you don't have an AI or a code picking up the frequency or the movements, but do you so they still get reliable head twitch but do you have any like comment on i guess just like reproducibility of like results with psychedelics versus visual versus automated scoring mm-hmm. yeah i think I, I i wouldn't give too much uh I, I i'm not too concerned about it not being reproducible i think the magnitude can change a great deal because if a score is missing 40 percent of the head twitches consistently well you know in in their own little comparators, they're gonna be able to pick up an effect, mm-hmm. even if the magnitude is less. Uh, but like I said, you know, the tediousness of, of assessing it in the long run can lead to, you know, head twitches decreasing over time just yeah. by the fact that people don't wanna do it anymore. But yeah, also little things like changing the lighting and the lighting, um, whether the animal is looking on the one side or in a more shaded area within the testing arena, that's something that's going to uh, impact the visual assessment. Mm-hmm. You will never have that issue with a magnetic approach. Right. That's true. So that's, I feel like, a good place to ask this question. So how do you think the automation of this system has changed the scope of psychedelic research and this drug characterization within the field? Yeah, uh, I think the interest on head twitch has grown along with the uh, psychedelic uh, renaissance. Because it really brings a, a new dimension to uh, study psychedelics in, in, in mice models. It gives you uh, a decent throughput. It's unbiased because you can uh, do this basically rely on that no one's is, is, uh, interfered with, with, with the assessment. And uh, I think a lot of uh, companies in the space have seen this as a very appealing way to enable um, the, the, the drug discovery uh, processes because the best alternative that we have to head twitch will be drug discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, drug discrimination involves training of the subjects then you need to teach them to recognize a stimulus that feels like a psychedelic drug versus something that is not. So of course, not only there's more you know labor and time, there's also more room for error basically making it more expensive and mm-hmm. time consuming. So in that regard, I think it works great for, you know, enabling drug discovery, uh, drug discovery efforts. And just for those who are not familiar with drug discrimination, you basically can train a mouse to lever press based on, um, like, so they get a training drug, for example, it could be LSD. They're trained to press the lever when they're on LSD versus like a saline. Um, and then you can give another psychedelic later once they're trained, and if they press the same lever um, that LSD was trained on, that kind of alludes to a similar 
quote unquote subjective effect of the drug in the mouse. So they feel, well, no, they don't feel. How do you, what's a good word to like do that? Interoceptive stimulus? In, yeah. <laughs> Mice don't have feelings. So I guess they. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> that we know of. That's next week's episode. Um, but yeah, so basically it just allows for the mouse to essentially discriminate between drugs and saline. Mm-hmm. But, Correct. Yeah. And, you know, these two behaviors that don't, are not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. I feel like head twitch belongs very well into that early stage of the drug discovery process or in academic labs that want to get a, more of an insight into that serotonin 2A pharmacology in vivo. But um, it's very likely that if, if in any, any drug development effort down the road, the FDA might slap you back with that. Well, no, you need to really justify that this drug does not look like LSD or doesn't feel like LSD and in, in your in your rodent animals to claim that it's a non-psychedelic. So mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're complementary in their way, but probably one uh, being cheaper and more th and higher throughput, it's a lot, a lot more amenable for people that want to make their best new psychedelic, third generation psychedelic drug. <laughs> yeah, I always like doing head twitch experiments, like when we get new compounds or, you know, when we are working with the medicinal chemistry department and they send us stuff, I'm always like, I'll do it. Cause like, I love one, the fact that it takes like one day to do it with the automated system, but also I think it's exciting cause it is like an unconditioned behavior. So there's no real influence of, you know, maybe things like the light, the weather, whatever, but there's no real influence of just like a conditioning or a training. It's like you give the mice the drugs and they do what they're going to do. And I just like the like nice surprise you get when you're like testing something new or like doing dose response. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and going back to the computer and see those, seeing those traces where you can get a, 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 an idea from the get go on how potent the drug looks like. And even on the time course of events, mm -hmm. right? Like how there's more in the beginning and over time they wash out. It's, it's a, it's fun pharmacology. <laughs> it's got, it's, it's pharmacology before your eyes, literally. It's funicology. Funicology. <laughs> so interestingly, the first ever recorded, uh, drug illicit head twitch was noted following IV administration of LSD. And so uh, it's been reported in a couple different papers that, you know, this behavior was rapid, but it lasted over a long period of time. And several years later, um, it was found that not only LSD, but also other psychedelics, including psilocybin and mescaline, also produced this head twitch response. And so since these original findings in you know, the 1950s and 60s, there's been a lot of consistent reports demonstrating that this behavior increases in frequency, like we mentioned, following administration of serotonergic psychedelics. So my question is, is it specific to serotonergic compounds? And what about serotonin itself? I know there's been a few studies on this. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So, you know, in terms of observing the behavior, uh, it's, it's such an evident behavior that even the layman can appreciate it, right? It wouldn't take you more than five minutes to train someone walking down the street to measure and quantify a head to it. So there's, it's, it's really something that becomes readily apparent when the mice are given psychedelics. And thus far, all classical psychedelics induce it. Um, you know, before the automation efforts or semi-automation, there was this conversation on whether DMT induced it, induced it or not, you know, whether how you can fill all the gaps. Um, the excellent work that Adam Halberstadt has done pretty much shows that if it's a psychedelic that we know of, it's gonna induce head twitch. So, you know, 
in that regard, it's it's pretty predictive on 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 that front, or for, at least it it it, it keeps it its, its expression very well uh, circumscribed to psychedelic drugs. Is it is this, is is it exclusive? It is not. Um, it's not something that only serotonergic drugs induced. Um, I'm aware of a cannabinoid drug that induces head twitch. I'm aware of one. Uh, I believe it's um, on a each receptor called a drug called Ezilin that also induces head twitch. Mm -hmm. The nature of which can be very different, right? Like we don't even know if there's some circuitry involved in those cases. But um, perhaps taking it back to psychedelics. Uh, the good aspect about it is that we have a very low rate of, or maybe an existent rate of false negatives. If it's a psychedelic, we know it's going to induce head twitch. Mm -hmm. We do have false positives, especially in the serotonergic uh, arena. But this is also the beauty of, of, of this experiment. That is one of those systems where we have a very well-filled confusion matrix. Drug psychedelic versus non-psychedelic induces head twitch versus non doesn't induce head twitch, which I think is rare. Sometimes researchers tend to go for the big narrative, just tracing a linear path of they want to show. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, so much work has been done that we have a pretty neat understanding of what to expect when we do an experiment based on the mechanism of action of the drug. Yeah, and and you mentioned Halberstadt's papers, and I frequently cite them because he and their group has pretty much I think done every single psychedelic like in head twitch like the indiolamines the you know all of every single every every like, chemical group. family you can think <laughs> of absolutely um, and it's nice and they also um, have a paper linking the potency across species of some of these psychedelics too with head twitch so that was you know, just another thing to appreciate with this assay is that yeah. it's pretty translational. And very thoroughly explored, which mm -hmm. is, like I said, you know, synaptic plasticity and psychedelics, we could only wish it was explored with such level of robustness and, and industriousness, mm -hmm. but we're going to have to wait until we get there. Um, we talked about what compounds produce this head twitch and a little bit about those false positives and the little amount of false negatives. So is there any subtle differences across compounds? So like do different psychedelic serotonin 2A agonists, like, you know, for example, um, DOI, phenethylamine, which we've talked about before, versus tryptamine, psilocybin, do they produce like different frequencies or like differences in the head twitch response? Yeah, so in general, phenethylamines um, and embos tend to produce higher frequencies than uh, tryptamines or ergolins and even in between tryptamines and ergolins I think ergolins tend to be a little bit more uh, more generous um, the, the thing is that I the, right now there's so many synthetic efforts going on trying to make new compounds new, new derivatives that this rather intuitive you know classification of high frequency chemical family versus low frequency chemical families diluting away a little bit um, there's debate on what this different in frequency means um, you know, complex interactions at the pharmacokinetic level, the fact that all these compounds exhibit polypharmacology, it's kind of, it's factors that can come together into modulating the ultimate expression. But, um, you know, the recommendation is 
to limit the interpretation to each chemical family within mm-hmm. a bunch a bunch of analogs to be able to you know get a sense of what induces more what induces less and the other thing is you know the paper we mentioned earlier the EC50 tends to be the translation the, the one factor and parameter that has that translational value what dose will start triggering psyche, um, a psychedelic effect in human is a dose that correlates pretty well with the dose that would start inducing a frequency of head twitches in the mouse. Mm-hmm. And so the EC50 is kind of like that potency parameter, so the measure of how potent the compound is at producing the specific behavior. And so, yeah, like we were mentioning, the, the potency across species is pretty well, um, it's pretty translational and it's nicely characterized. Uh, so why do you think some non-psychedelic serotonin 2A agonists like lyceride do not produce head twitch given its similarity in structure to LSD? Is there a chemical reason? Is there a pharmacodynamic reason? It's an ongoing research topic <laughs> and, and a great edge for drug discovery because you know the fact that we have this very clearly distinctive phenotype across mice and human gives up people a lot of edge to think about serotonin to a agonist that might be non-psychedelic. As to um, what is the potential reason behind this? Well, there's all kinds of reasons have been uh, posited, right? We have the polypharmacology with, you know, serotonin 1A and serotonin 2C curving or modulating the, the throughput of serotonin 2A stimulation. Doesn't sound like the most likely um, or more overarching hypothesis, but it's out there. We also have the, the biosignaling hypothesis, right? The same receptor being able to signal or send downstream um, messages differently depending on, on what, um, what ligand is the one that's bound to it. Um, and then another rather uncomplicated explanation relates to the percentage of receptor population that is activated, meaning that if you have a drug like glyceride, that it's able to engage a certain limited population of serotonin 2 receptors might not get to the threshold upon which it's able to induce head twitch or produce a psychedelic effect. Right. Yeah, there's, you know, a lot of different things at play with that. I've heard, like, explanations from, well, it comes down to the chemistry and how it binds in the receptor from, well, it binds to all of these things, so maybe that's, like, causing it not to. So, ongoing, like you said. It's... Ongoing, and as a matter of fact, in vivo, lyceride behaves and not not just as as a non agonist, but but as an antagonist, which complicates things even further. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> Nothing is black and white in science like you think it should be. But so we've talked about how these you know serotonergic compounds um, produce this head twitch. So that leads us kind of to talk about this unrefuted mechanism of the activation. Of these serotonin 2A receptors in the cortex being the reason why this head twitch is produced. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, um, this is one of those like nearly black and white arenas, right? Where we have human uh, data and, and, and data coming from rodents merging very well into the, into the, the whole uh, picture. And yeah, the, the involvement of the serotonin 2A receptor that's established beyond discussion in humans through the use of antagonists that can block it, in mice through the complete ablation, as in a knockout model, but also with antagonists like like in humans. 
And um, related to on, on the piece about the circuitry involved in uh, the, 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 the expression of, of uh, head twitch, there's work uh, done by Javier Gonzalez Maya, so showing that it is 2A expressing the cortex that allow for this uh, head twitch to become evident, at least partially, might not recapitulate it entirely, but uh, at least a good portion of it. And the other chunk might actually be somewhere else. There's uh, this old paper with that I can't recall the, the date of in which they, I believe they decorticated um, rats and they were still able to see some degree of head twitching. So, you know, it seems that receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor, mostly at the cortex, but also participated by other uh, downstream uh, circuitries are, is, are the main drivers of head twitch expression. Yeah, some beautiful work done with the genetic uh, knockout. Also with the characterization of the antagonism too with head twitch. I feel like it's been seen with multiple antagonists, which is nice. It's not like we're just using like one slightly selective thing, but we've used more competitive drugs to try to gauge um, the different doses that you need to stop the head twitch, you know, so. Yeah, and and on that one, one fascinating thing, one fascinating thing is that the serotonin two agonists feel like they're almost too potent at blocking the head twitch. When you think about the dose needed to block it, which might speak back to what I mentioned earlier about the percentage of receptors that can be activated, right? Like mm -hmm. you need a certain threshold before it can it can manifest. Yeah, and I mean, we I have a paper. Um, that I mentioned earlier with the Dr. Negus's lab at VCU, but um, myself and Harrison Elder, who was on a previous episode with me, uh, we kind of characterized antagonism across a couple different psychedelics, and we found, you know, the, the potency was different with structurally different psychedelics of it to block certain effects in certain behaviors. So it's just also an interesting piece of the puzzle there is like how much of it is 2A dependent versus not. So Yeah, you need a certain amount a certain percentage of the receptors being available, which I think is also something that we could uh, put in the context of tolerance. Like mm -hmm. if there's not enough 2A, you're not gonna be able to trip the day after and the mice won't get to head twitch right. if they've been pre-exposed to a psychedelic. Yeah, and you have a whole paper on that. Yeah, so. yeah, tolerance <laughs> and cross tolerance around psychedelics from last year. Yeah, I'm gonna link um, all the re relevant literature in our blog that will correspond with this episode. So you guys can give it a read. And if you can't access any of the PDFs, just send me an email and I will send you whatever you need. So, all right, given the activation of serotonin 2A and this involvement in this current accepted mechanism of the psychedelic experience being 2A mediated, do you think that this head twitch is the equivalent of a mouse tripping? And if not, what do you think it is? Yeah, that's it. That's a million dollar question. I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think I would equate it. And I think I'm, I, I, I like what the NIMH uh, published late, re recently. They released this notice of information where they will call for caution on the interpretation of head tweets as a sign of hallucinosis in mice, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though I do think mice can be tripping or definitely having a distorted relationship with their environment, I don't think uh, that's really bound to the head to its experience. The, uh, the latter doesn't, imp doesn't imply the former. You can have head twitch and the mice trip in, but one could be present 
I guess without the other. Um, I don't know to the, to to the what extent there's some 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 sensory nature to head twitch. Um, to me, it feels more like a reflex, something a stereotype mm -hmm. that the mice might not be even too aware uh, of. But I guess it would be up to them, and we would need to ask them to figure it out. Yeah, don't you wish you could just interview the mice, give them a little questionnaire? Yeah, absolutely. Too bad they're so mute about their experiences. That's the ineffability of the psychedelic experience for you. Yeah, I think we'd be tripping if the mice started talking to us about their experience. So, Is there any other, I guess, considerations that we should think about when we're uh, inferring what this kind of head twitch behavior means? So, um, you know, the the... The whole design defines how you can interpret it, right? It's, it's, if, if you're using it on the context of establishing which one of these compounds could be more psychedelic or, or more potent or a more potent psychedelic, I think that's a very neat uh, classi classification system. And I could go back to the Tourette uh, example. If you have a genetic mouse line, where this stereotype behavior becomes more apparent because whatever gene unrelated to the serotonergic system is mutated, you could interpret it within that context and I w there would be no conflict. Mm -hmm. if you're thinking, wait, what? Tourette syndrome mice are tripping? Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. Because, you know, there's... Head Twitch does have an interesting kind of history with its interpretation. So when, you know, how I mentioned the 1950s when it came out, um, and when psychedelics were kind of being talked about as psychotomimetic, like, you know, this model was called, you know, a model of psychosis. Um, and then it kind of moved into like the proxy for the psychedelic trip. And now it's kind of more referred to as like a tool or a functional readout of the serotonergic 2A activation. Um, but I guess my question is like, does it have to be any of these or like vice versa? Why can't it be all of them, you know? I feel like it's just kind of a tool to understand a lot of the, the complexity that in the complexity of humans that we can only break down so far in these mouse models. So thoughts? On yeah, I, I really, I, I really <laughs> like the, the, the description of, of it as a tool and in terms of the models. Yeah, it, 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 it's all of them and none at the same time, right? Like it depends on how specifically, what variables you're controlling, where, you, where are you trying to look at? And, and ultimately, what are you expecting? And with that, caref being careful of not uh, going too far on the interpretation. Um, you know, it's not hard to encounter a paper where people talk about depressed mice. Well, you know, just because we simplify to talk about depressed mice, please don't take it literally. It just means mm -hmm. that we have a model in which, you know, the, the, the variables that we have predefined seem to be con Con, uh, con congruent with the idea that this is an antidepressant-like response, right. allow us to go for the more uh, less wordy depressed mice uh, in description. So in terms of um, head twitch, it's very tightly bound to the serotonin to activation that is very well established. So if you were to engage in a development of antipsychotics, um, it's a pretty neat system to validate those profiles in vivo. We have antipsychotics that are characteristically serotonin to a antagonist. So blocking uh, the expression of that response definitely can attribute that mm -hmm. potential as an antipsychotic. Would I call head twitch a model of psychosis? No, but if I have a bunch of drugs that are able to block it, 
I can suspect that they can function as antipsychotics. So mm -hmm. it's a nuance, but I think, you know, the it's devil is in the details. Yeah. It's yeah. an important nuance to make, I think. You don't want to anthropomorphize your models, I guess. Something that bothers me. I try not to do it, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always best to keep, keep things descriptive rather than right. project too much. <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, the, the extent to which it could be a projection of something some kind of like psychotic like state or like hallucinosis could be testable if you were to think about um transferring the experience to a different sensory um domain always try to over, always approach from different angles to make a stronger case yeah so all right i have really enjoyed this discussion so before we wrap up here i just want to bring it back around to like human relevance for a moment um and this was something that i read in the opinion piece from psychedelic alpha and i i thought that was a clever comparison so uh the possibility that while humans don't head twitch necessarily under psychedelics they yawn can you kind of talk about this because i really i was like thinking about it and i was like oh my gosh yeah that's like totally a thing but i just yeah yeah, so so that's you know that was that was the mental exercise that I did for that piece. Try to sift the anthropocentric, uh, our anthropocentric perspective to go to a more like mouse centric one, right? Like, okay, what well, do 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 us mice have any projection in humans that look like what we do? Certainly, yawning is not the same as head twitching. They're very different expressions of, yeah. of an autonomic response. And yet, both are triggered by psychedelics very generously. There's a couple of analogies that I throw in that piece related to when they occur and, and, and how they don't correlate with any somnolence. Uh, more the opposite, arousal in the case of yawning, uh, triggered by, by psychedelics. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, in, in a moment in which we talk so much about the subjective effects of, of psychedelics, I think it's also good to bring attention to well psychedelics do other things and not only they do other things they also you know there's things that you can measure and observe that might equate to some other substrates that might be present across different species mm -hmm. even if they express differently yeah something more like autonomic than subjective like like a yawn exactly or a twitch you know mm -hmm. And I could go as far as thinking like this is something that, you know, psychedelic clinics might uh, implement, try to assess just by a very cheap observation on, on, on their subjects, the depth of the experience, the penetrance of the psychedelic effect is based on how much the subject is letting their mouth, their mouth <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, Mouse like cor mouth. correlating the, the yawning with the like dose <laughs> or something. <laughs> Be interesting. Yeah. Um, but. And it also serves as a, you know, to make a little bit of a case in favor of preclinical models, I feel like oftentimes we'll, they tend to be looked down with disdain, like, oh yeah, well, you know, mice, whatever. But, you know, we can establish some parallelisms farther down the road that can allow us to strengthen what, or solidly consolidate what we learn from them. And it's been documented on, on, on some of the papers from, from Griffiths in, in, in John, Hop John Hopkins and, and others, and yet, no one ever seemed to wonder about uh, what this, you know, w what lies underneath the surface. What is the mechanism that se that that seems to very clearly exacerbate mm -hmm. yawning? It's talked upon 
long and broad in 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 psychonaut forum on on online all, o- online all over the place yeah. uh, and not that to say that this is a breakthrough but it's it's certainly something that could give us some insight as to what the pharmacology looks like on an objective non-subjective manner gotcha gotcha yeah it, it really is fascinating food for thought <laughs> um and i think it, it's a good place to kind of leave the listeners um think about that everybody but so thank you so much for joining us today mario and for letting us hear all of your thoughts on this topic thank you for having me over alina it's been a pleasure and you know we're we're both big fans of head twitch so (laughs) if you felt that passion come through it's definitely there (laughs) yes so there you have it folks the breakdown on the head twitch response from one of the experts and enthusiasts Um, So if you liked today's episode, drop some comments, subscribe, share, check out the blog post with papers, and I'm going to break down some of the more scientific concepts on there on our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com. So thanks for listening, and tune in next week, like I mentioned, for an episode I'm very excited about that discuss whether mice have the mystical experience. (laughs) 